This week on our water series is kind of part two of last week. And so if you were here last week, try to recall what you learned. Uh, If you weren't, don't worry. I'm going to recap that very briefly for you. Last week we addressed um, the classic passage of the foundation built on sand versus the foundation built on the rock. We try to understand what does it mean to have a foundation built on the stand and what happens when the storms of life come because the storms of life will come. They will beat against your house. And so how do you have a foundation that can stand through the storms of life? And the answer really is the felt tension between God versus gods. In ancient days, household had these little stands that were covered in these little wooden trinkets. We call them idols. If someone needed deliverance from their enemies, they would approach some war deity's idol, and they would pray, and they would make sacrifices to it. If you wanted many sons, if you wanted a good crop, well, you'd go to the fertility god, and you would make sacrifices to it, and you would pray to it. That was their worldview. If I want my life to be a certain way, then I will pray to the right god, and he will make it so. But the prophets in the Old Testament mocked this a lot. They were like, do you guys realize what you're doing? You're going out into the woods, you're cutting down a tree, you're dragging it back to your shop, you're carving it down, you're trimming it down, you're making a little trinket out of a piece of wood, and you're bowing down, you're saying, this is my God who will deliver me? They mocked it, and they made fun of it a lot. Because the people realized how futile this was when a fire broke out. Right? And the fire broke out, and it swept through their tent, and it burned all those little trinkets. They're like, oh my goodness, what do I do? My foundation has been washed away, it's been burned up. I have no legs to stand on now. Everything I put my hope and my trust in, my worldview of how my life is to be good has been washed away by this fire. Jump 400, 400, jump 4,000 years into the future to where we are today. And we may not have stands in our household with little trinkets, but we still have a ton of idols. We still put our hope and our trust in idols. Think of the professional football player who loves the fame that he receives, and he builds his identity around people chanting his name and what he can do for his team. And then one day he goes and he gets injured on the field, and he gets carted off the field, and he's never able to play the sport again. He no longer hears the people chanting his name. He no longer sees that he is this famous person because everybody has gone on to the next star. And all of a sudden his foundation has been washed away, and he has no place to put his worth. He has no place to put his identity, and so he's lost. Or maybe from an early age, you dreamed of having a certain occupation. You dreamed of being a lawyer, for instance. And that was how you identified yourself and how you defined yourself. But then you get to that point of your life where you have to go and take the bar exam. You just can't pass the bar exam. It doesn't matter how many times you try. It doesn't matter how much effort you put into it. You cannot pass the bar exam. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And all of a sudden, you see your dreams begin to crumble. Your identity and that what defined you begin to crumble all around you. And your self-worth begins to crash because you put your foundation in these faulty identities. You built your house and your life upon these faulty identities. The way you define yourself, we invest our self-worth and our hope and our self-definition in occupations. And the way we decorate our house and the jobs we have and the amount of money we make and our spouse or if we're married or not. We do these all the time. But when we define ourselves by these temporal things, when those things crash and burn, and they will crash and burn, then we have no hope. We have nowhere to place our trust. We're left squandering. We have no idea what to do with our life. That is idolatry. When you place your trust and self-worth in something that is not worthy of your trust, 
and self-worth. That is idolatry, and we do it all the time. And so Jesus says, don't build your self-worth or place your hope and your trust on these foundations of sand because they will wash away. Rather, let God define you. Allow his self-worth to be your self-worth. Allow his love to penetrate your heart. Know that you are loved unconditionally. Know that you are forgiven. Know that grace and mercy sustain you every single day because these are rocks that will not wash away by the chaos of the world. And how we get to that point of being defined by God rather than the gods is by dying to ourselves. We all at one point had our hearts that were concerned only with our own well-being and our own welfare. We had self-centered, self-reigning hearts. And really the nature of idolatry is that I use these little trinkets, I use these things to benefit myself, to build up myself, to build my own self-esteem. You know, whether it be wooden trinkets that we believe to house the gods or people or titles or money or status, we use all of these things for our own self-benefit. And when those idols are washed away, we mourn their loss because they can no longer benefit us. And that is what it feels like when the house is swept away. But when we die to that heart and are given a new one through God's forgiveness and grace, we no longer see the things of this world for our own benefit, but we see them as gifts. We see them as gifts that God has graciously blessed us with, that we didn't deserve these blessings, but God has given us these blessings and these gifts. And so when they're washed away, yes, we mourn. Absolutely, we mourn. That is a natural human reaction to any loss. And you need to do it. You need to mourn. You need to learn the art of grieving. But your life does not need to crumble when these temporary things crumble. And that is kind of what we talked about last week. If you have your Bibles, we're going to kind of continue this conversation by going into another classic passage in the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. The words will be on the screen. But I encourage you to bring your your Bibles with you each week. If you do not own one, we'd be happy to get you one. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to start at chapter 14. It says this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to him, went out to them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Well, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Father, we do thank you for your word that is living and active. Uh, It says that it is able to pierce through both bone and marrow right to the very heart. And so God, I pray that it would do that this morning. 
I pray that we would be able to claim sure foundations, Father, for when the storms of life, when we are amidst the waves, we will have something to stand upon, Father. I pray for each one in this room, Father, that you'd open hearts and open minds to receive your word this morning. It would begin a good work in them. And that we'd all be changed because of our time together. Amen. You know, for a lot of reasons, I think this passage is, is kind of hard to understand. Because I don't, I don't know about you, but have you ever seen someone who walk on water before? Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, Bryce has experienced it, yeah. There is a, the what? The a water gecko. Wow, that's, that, that's, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, a human being, right? The, I mean, a, a human being walking on water? Water can't sustain the weight of a human being. And so we look at this and we're like, oh, man, this, we, we get caught up in these debates of, did this really happen? Well, you know, maybe Jesus was just among the shallows. And it just appeared that he was walking on water. But the text doesn't say that. That, that doesn't do justice to the text or to the tradition. Three of the four gospel writers that include this state it very matter-of-factly. It's like, it's just another healing. It's just another miracle. It's just another rise from the dead. Very matter-of-factly, Jesus is not confined to the physical limitations that we are. Jesus transcended those things. And so... If we are focused on Jesus walking on water, and that's all we focus on, and that's all we get out of this passage is that Jesus did this incredible miracle, then we're really going to miss the point of what Matthew is trying to communicate. And so a few things to take note as we try to understand what Matthew is saying here. The first is that this is not an allegory, but it is full of hidden meaning. And so Matthew isn't trying to say something in some abstract, mysterious way here, but you need to understand that there is a ton of hidden meaning behind what Matthew is communicating. The second thing is that Matthew is very Jewish and Old Testament-focused in his writing. We, we understand this quickly by comparing Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1 to Luke's genealogy, and you'll notice that Matthew begins his genealogy not with Adam like Luke does, but with Abraham. He's going back to the beginning of God's people, the Jewish nation, not to all of the world. We also understand that Matthew includes 44 Old Testament quotations. I mean, he's just riddling his gospel with Old Testament allusions and imagery and quotations. He tells and retells the ancient Jewish stories and defines them now through Jesus Christ. He constantly uses Old Testament allusions to describe Jesus. Please understand this is an incredibly important point, that you need to understand the Old Testament in order to understand what Matthew is trying to convey here by Jesus walking on water. The third thing is that the sea, or the hostile water in Jewish thought, was the source of chaos and evil in the world. And so they looked at the hostile waters and it embodied evil, and it personified the wickedness in the world. Read Psalm 18, 16 through 17, for instance. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the waters. And notice how that verse 6 alone is basically a paraphrase of Matthew 14 when Jesus walks on water. He continues, he rescued me from my powerful enemy, my, from my foes who were too strong for me. The waters are personified as the deadly enemies. Another example, Psalm 32, 6. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And so when the chaos of the world beats against me, I have a sure refuge 
and God my Savior. When the waters rise up, he is above and he transcends the chaos of the waters and he is a safe place to put my trust. The last thing that we need to know is that emotions are raw right now in this story. Emotions are incredibly raw. Go back to the end of chapter 13. Look at the context. Jesus goes home to his town, his his hometown of Nazareth, and he's like, wow, I'm going to be before my high school buddies. I'm going to be before my childhood friends. I'm going to be around the people who loved me and took care of me growing up. I'm going to be among my family. This is going to be great. I'm going to go to my hometown, and I'm going to bring the kingdom of God to my hometown. And he goes to his hometown. He goes to the synagogue that he grew up in. He tries to preach about the kingdom of God, and they're like, we don't, who is this guy? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't that Mary's son? We, we know his brothers. How does he teach with such miracles? How does he teach with such power and authority? Who is this guy? He's not the Jesus we knew. His heart must have been broken. It says that he wasn't able to perform any miracles in that town because they lacked faith. His own people whom he loved lacked faith. And so he leaves Nazareth. And immediately he receives word that his good friend and cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. Not the best news that you want to hear. You get that phone call, John the Baptist has been beheaded. And he was so because he stood up for what was right. And Jesus gets a smack in the face about the corruption and the injustice of his own government. And he's heartbroken. And so he tries to flee off by himself to mourn. He goes across the lake, but he gets to the other side of the lake, and there are 15,000 people waiting for him. The Bible says that there were 5,000 men, but it also says that it didn't include women or children in that number, so we can estimate 15,000 people are sitting there waiting for him. And it's not just 15 healthy, strong people, it's 15 people who are sick. 15,000 people who are sick and diseased and demon-possessed and mute and blind and lame. It's 15,000 people who are hungry. And so Jesus, after the faithlessness of Nazareth and after the corruption and the injustice of his own government and beheading his own cousin and the person he loved dearly, he goes and he sees that there are 15,000 people sick and diseased and hurting. And the world is just taking its toll on these people. And so he has compassion on them and he begins to heal them. But they're also sick. Uh, I'm sorry, they're also hungry. And they're hungry, as all people knew in their day, because the, gov- the government was, was corrupt. And they're withholding resources from their own people. And the peasants were those who struggled against the tide of the government. And so Jesus has another thing thrown upon his heart. Oh man, this world is horrible. From every angle, Jesus is experiencing this horror of how raw the world is. And how it beats up on its people. And how governments are unjust, and how governments are corrupt, and how people get sick and they die, and they're lame, and they're blind, and they're mute, and how we're faithless. And Jesus just is just weighed down by this. And the disciples are all there experiencing it with him. They too are heartbroken, they too are struggling. They too realize how horrible and twisted the world is. And so Jesus sees this as an opportunity to teach his disciples a very valuable lesson, to show them a very profound truth. 
And so he sends them out on their way out into the sea while he stays back to dismiss the crowds. Jesus takes a few hours by himself to go up into the mountains to pray and to mourn for his cousin. All the while, the disciples are making absolutely no progress in crossing the sea because it says the wind was against it. There is a storm developing, and the disciples once again find themselves buffeted by the wind and the water. They're in the midst of hostile waters. They have just been in the midst of hostile waters for the last day, but now quite literally they're in the midst of hostile waters. The source of all chaos and evil in the world was personified as hostile waters. Keep that in mind. They're quite literally in the middle of all the evil and all the chaos in the world, all the pain and the heartache and the faithlessness and the murder and the corruption and the injustice and the disease they just now experience is personified by the waters they are literally in the midst of. And so Matthew 14, 25 says, During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the water. Walking on the water in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus goes out to them. Now, any of Matthew's Jewish audience reading this would immediately recognize that although many great prophets had done water miracles, all over the place prophets are doing water miracles in the Old Testament, there was only one that could tread upon the waves. There was only one person described in the Old Testament that could walk upon water. Anybody have any idea who that person was? God. Only God was the one who could walk upon water. Only God, according to the psalmists and the Proverbs and the prophets, was the one who could tread upon the waves of the sea, as Job says. Only God can do that. And so here, among the hostile waters and the chaos and the frustrations and the horror of living in this world is Jesus, God embodied, walking upon the waters. Here is God to the rescue. And Matthew is very deliberate to state that Jesus did this during the fourth watch of the night. And that is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Now, any of Matthew's Jewish audience reading this would immediately remember that when the Israelites were hemmed in and the Egyptians were stampeding down on them, that during the fourth watch of the night, the text says, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariot so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them. During the fourth watch of the night is when God comes to the rescue. And so we hear you have God walking upon the water in the fourth watch of the night, coming to the rescue. Jesus walking on the water stomping down the waves of confusion and chaos is a great declaration of his conquest over the sin and the evil in the world. The faithless, corrupt, murderous, disease-ridden, unjust world we live in, here is Jesus stomping down the waves of chaos. You know, this is a word that I believe a lot of people in this room probably need to hear this morning. I don't exactly know what context you are experiencing the waves and the hostile waters beating against you. But I'm sure that you are. I I know that you are from the stories that I've heard and from the conversations that many of you and I have had. You you feel at a loss of what to do. You don't know where hope can be found. You don't know where life 
can be found. You're amidst hostile waters. You know, maybe your husband just walked out on you. Or your wife filed for a divorce. Or maybe you lost your job recently. Or maybe you're tempted by that sin that, that just seems so convincing and powerful. Or maybe you're tempted to have a drink after five years of sobriety. Or maybe the doctor's report isn't good. Or maybe you're struggling with something. Or maybe you're troubled. This is the same truth for you, too, that Jesus stomps upon the waters of chaos. Jesus stands above the hostile waters, stomping them down as he comes to us. As he comes to us. Notice how Jesus is not just sitting back on the shore saying, hey, good luck, guys. I I, I hope that the waves aren't too bad for you that you can make it on your own across the sea. Take courage, guys. I hope that you have the courage to get through this horrible storm brewing up. I hope it's not too hard, guys. I hope you can muster up enough strength to get through the hostile waters. I hope it's not too hard getting to me. That's not what Jesus does. He does not stay on the shore, but he comes out into the hostile waters to where his people are. Jesus sees his friends and are in trouble, and like the God that he is, he comes to us in order that we might be saved. Amen? One of Matthew's favorite themes in his gospel is that of Emmanuel, that God is with us, that amidst the horror and the chaos of this world, God is with us. And this is the central theme of this passage, that in our time of trouble, God is with us, trampling the chaos underfoot. Who needs a God who can trample your chaos underfoot? Yeah, right? The, tra- the, the, the challenge, though, is that we live in a society and in a world that says, I want the effects of his trampling the chaos underfoot to be immediate. Jesus didn't literally stomp the waves down as he walked towards the boat. It's not like he stepped on a wave and all of a sudden there's a little four-foot square pocket of water that would never produce a wave again. He walked through the hostile waters. He walked through the chaos. And the text says, when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Literally, the Greek says, take courage. Ego, I am me. Take courage. I am. You guys know where that comes from? Any of Matthew's Jewish audience reading this would immediately recall not only the story of the burning bush and the Exodus, when God pronounced that his name was I Am, but also the story and the prophetic word of Isaiah when God is talking about the suffering servant and how he would bring liberation to the chaos of the world. How through the suffering servant and the suffering of his servant that he would bring liberation to all those in bondage, and he would bring freedom to all those who are experiencing decay. And so how does God liberate his people from bondage in Egypt? Well, it's through the waters of the Red Sea. He doesn't beam them up in a spaceship and say, all right, guys, I'm going to beam you up and take you to a beautiful, glorious land. That's not how he does it. It's through the waters of the Red Sea that God liberates his people from their bondage. They had to run through the chaos with their enemies closing in on them in order for God's hand to deliver them. And so if you think back in the Garden of Eden, 
Adam and Eve choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, Adam and Eve, please don't do that. Please don't eat of that tree. But they do it anyway. And God says, you have just opened a Pandora's box of evil and chaos that is going to affect everything in this world. Chaos and horror and evil and, and, and cheating and lying and, and envy and lust and greed and hatred and murder and all these horrible things are now going to flood my creation because you chose to rebel against me. All of creation, all of creation, not just humans, but all of creation has been thrown into chaos. And I'm not just going to beam you out of it. I can't just get the spaceship and beam you up into a new planet. I'm not willing to do that. The healing of this chaos, the closing of the Pandora's box, the healing of the horror and the restoration of my good world will come through the chaos. It will not go around it. And so how does God liberate his people from the bondage of sin and the chaos in the world? Well, it's through the suffering of his servant, Jesus Christ. And I love it that when Jesus dies upon the cross, when Jesus dies upon the cross and he takes upon the sin and the chaos of the world upon his own shoulders, what he does is he tears a hole in the veil that separates God's perfect, wonderful world that we call heaven from our corrupt, chaos-filled world that we call earth. He tears a hole in the veil that separates through so that God's healing, restoration, liberation, and freedom can come flooding back in to cover our world. That's kind of what the cross does. And for those of us who stand at that gap, looking into heaven through the cross, for those of us who stand at the cross and say, God, I need your healing in my life. I need your liberation in my life. We have tasted and we have seen the breath of air that comes from heaven. And although my life is not fully restored, I have seen heaven. I have tasted God, and it is good. Amen? A a world that is still on the outskirts, not at the ripped seam of the veil, is still wondering where restoration, where hope can be found. And all we have to do is say, Jesus has done it. That's what Jesus came to do, is to set the world right. And for those of us who can place our trust in him, that seed of restoration, that seed of liberation, that seed of hope has been to grow in us. But so many of us want liberation and deliverance from suffering. But you need to know that God never promised that. He said, I will bring liberation, I will bring deliverance, but I will bring it through suffering, through the chaos as my son takes upon it all, his shoulders. And so the actions of Peter in this moment become very important then. If liberation comes through the chaos, it comes through the hostile waters, not around it, then we need to get out of the boat. Lord, Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Lord, if you are who you truly say you are, if you are my redeemer, if you are my liberator, if you are the giver of hope, then call me to you. Come, Jesus says. If you are my savior, if you are my rescuer from the chaos of the sinful world, then call me to you. And so he does. 
and not only to Peter, but to all of us. If you want hope, if you want liberation, if you want freedom from the chaos of this world, then come to me. Take a step of faith. And you've got to be thinking what's going through Peter's mind. Oh, man. Jesus, I don't know. You know, there's a little bit of protection in the boat. You know, at least the waves are hitting the side of the boat and they're not smacking me in the face. <laughs> Jesus, man, I, I, that is water. You, you, I, oh, man, Jesus, it's scary. I, I can't walk on water. I, I've, I've tried to walk onto the sea before, and immediately I go into the water. I can't walk on water. Jesus, what are you saying? Come to me out onto the water? Come to me out through the chaos and the hostile water? Man, it's scary. And Jesus says, you're right, it is scary. It is a step of faith. It is intimidating. I get that. But come. Come. And see what your faith will do for you when you come out into the hostile waters. When you come out onto the water. See what your faith will do. Then Peter got down out of the boat. And he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. He walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. You know, as is so often the case, the chaos attacked him the very minute that he stepped out in faith. I bet you we could talk for a long time about the personal experiences of how this is the case. It's the day after we experience the profound forgiveness of God that it just so happens to be the day that we go on Facebook and we read about a friend we knew in high school and how that friend is in a bad place. That friend is really depressed and hurting. And then we remember, and I used to pick on that kid. And we wonder if God's forgiveness is true. Anybody ever experienced that before? It's the day after we experience the profound life transformation of God's love that coincidentally, our spouse walks out on us and files for divorce. And we wonder if love even is real. And we, love if love, we wonder if love even exists in this world. And the day after we experience freedom through trust in God, putting our sin to death on the cross is just by chance the same day that we fall under the weight of temptation. And we stumble in that area that we said we were never going to stumble in. And guilt floods our hearts and we question if God will just keep setting us free. And the day after we experience a new identity in Jesus Christ and a new sense of worth is, ironically, the same day that the new magazines come out in the stores. And we look at their covers and we're like, man, if that's really a, a picture of beauty, I don't look like that. Does anybody actually really love me? We go home and we look in the mirror and we're like, man, I don't, I don't look like those people. W will anybody love me? Will anybody care for me? 
And the day after we are convinced that God has enacted a plan to fix the broken world just so happens to be the day that you receive a knock on the door. And your neighbor is in tears and sobbing saying that her son had just committed suicide. And you wonder if God is actually good. And the day after you believe in the word of God and its authority is the same day that you start school and your professor starts to belittle the word of God and your professor starts to say, man, everyone who believes that is just naive and ignorant. And the day after you start a church in Levittown just so happens to be the day when all hell seems to break loose all around you. Man, we've experienced it here as a church body. We've all experienced it in our own life. The very same day that we take a step in faith is the same day that the devil gets to work. You know, the devil's lazy. Man, the devil's not going to work unless we make him work, friends. He is perfectly content to let us sit back in our comfort and in our apathy and let us live our lives thinking that we're all good. Having a life that is comfortable inside the boat, he is perfectly willing to let us stay there. But the minute we step out is the day that he gets to work. Peter stood above the waves of the hostile water, stomping them down, just like Jesus did. He stomped on those waves. The chaos had no hold on him. And for a minute, Peter stood victorious, and then the devil went to work. The devil is trying to say, man, get back in the boat. You really want this life of pursuing Jesus? You really want the life of the cross? You really want to follow Jesus? Really? Let me show you how hard it's going to be. Get back in the boat. Let me show you how difficult it's going to be. I'm going to throw the chaos of the world on you. Get back in the boat. But my friends, we must move forward. We must press on. It says that Peter saw the wind. Have you guys ever seen wind before? You don't see the wind. You can't see the wind. You can see its effects. You can see the trees rustling in the distance. You can see the trash rolling across your front yard. You can see the effects of the wind, but you cannot see the wind. We do not see the devil working, but we feel its effects all the time. We live in a world where the devil is constantly at work trying to tell us to get back in the boat. It's not worth it, guys. Get back in the boat. It's too hard. Get back in the boat. Don't persevere. Don't press on. Get back in the boat. Behind all the jabs and the doubts and the questions and the feelings of guilt and wondering if God is even real and if God is even good is the devil at work trying to make us get back in the boat. He's trying to make us focus on the chaos. He's trying to make us focus on the hostile waters. He's trying to keep our eyes off of the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who said, the banner above your head is forgiven, not condemned. The banner above your head is loved. The banner of your head is cherished and worthy. Don't get back in the boat, my friends. Persevere, press on. Peter looked at the waves, and for a split second, he stood victorious. And then he remembered that he's amidst the sea. 
and he took his eyes off of Jesus, and he focused on the wind, and he focused on the waves, and he focused on the hostile waters and the chaos and how horrible the world is and how murderous and unjust and corrupt the political system is and how people are dying and diseased and and demon-possessed and hungry and how the world is faithless. He focused on all those things, and all of a sudden he begins to sink. The chaos begins to overtake him. But I live this. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? You know, I used to think that if I were struggling with temptation, and if I were struggling with doubt, and I was questioning who God is, and I was... uh, I was confused about my salvation, that if I questioned all of these things, I, I used to think that if there were people around me or myself, if I was suffering or if I was ill and disease-stricken, and, and the chaos of the world was around me, that that was an indicator that, that my life with God wasn't going very well, that I needed to spend more time in the Bible, that I needed to pray more, that, that if the horrors of the world were really impacting me and I was... I was really struggling with living in this world, and that meant that God was distant from me. But I've come to realize over the years that walking toward Jesus, the life of becoming more like him, is the road through the hostile waters. It's not around it. It's through it. And that if there is no struggle, that if my life doesn't have any hardships, that if I'm not constantly questioning how I'm being tempted and how I'm burdened by the own sin in my own life, that probably means I'm still in the boat because the devil's not working on me. He's not attacking me. He's not going after me because my life is too comfortable and still in the boat. It's not the life of struggle that God looks harshly upon. It's the life of apathy. It's the life of struggle amidst the chaos of the hostile waters, walking further and further towards Jesus, always keeping him as our focus that defines the life of faith. Get out of the boat, my friends. Get onto the hostile waters. Get out into the chaos and see what Jesus will do in you. Because when we slip and fall, and the reality is we're going to slip and fall. We're going to look at the waves. We're going to look in the chaos and say, I can't do this. I'm tempted to get back in the boat. And you begin to sink, and you begin to feel the waters rising up against you. That is when Jesus comes down and says, here, take my hand. Let me carry you. Many of you have probably heard or read the poem, Footprints in the Sand. It's kind of a classic, written in 1985. It reads this. It says, One night I dreamed, and I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. and In each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints, and other times there were one set of footprints. And this bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish and sorrow or defeat, I could only see one set of footprints. And so I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. 
Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, The times when you have seen only one set of footprints is when I was carrying you. Peter begins to sink. Because the hostile waters and the chaos and the sorrow and the bitterness of living in this world overwhelmed him. And he begins to sink. And Jesus reached down his hand and he holds Peter up. And together they get back into the boat. And it says that when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. The chaos ceased. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, any of Matthew's Jewish audience reading this would immediately see that phrase, the Son of God, and they would immediately remember messianic overtones throughout the Old Testament. When the Son of God, the Messiah, was going to come and he was going to fix the broken world. He was going to take all the chaos and the horror of living in this world and he was going to still it. And they look at Jesus and they begin to worship him and they say, you are the one who will do this. So my friends, if you are amidst hostile waters this morning, there are a couple truths that I want you to remember. Jesus comes to you in the midst of them, trampling down the waves, walking across them. He is above and beyond them, and he is safe refuge and protection from the hostile waters. But he does not fix the chaos by going around the hostile waters. He fixes the chaos by coming through it. And in the midst of the chaos, he calls us to come to him. To step out in faith onto the hostile waters, to pursue him. And that is where the devil is going to do his work. But if we persevere and if we look and keep our focus on Jesus Christ, then he will hold us up and carry us to safety. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what hostile waters you are in the midst of. But you need to know that God is a good God willing to protect you even in the midst of the horrors of your life. And he wants to do that for you. I'm going to invite the worship band forward. We're going to play one more song. But pray with me as they come forward. Father, Father, sometimes it seems easier said than done. You have called us to step out in faith, Father, to take these incredible steps of faith, Father, but it's scary, Father, because the world and what I'm experiencing, God, if someone just knew what I was experiencing, they would know how fearful and full of anxiety I am. And so, God, I I want to step out in faith, and I, and I look to you, Father, in the hostile waters. I want to step out, Father, but I need you to give me the courage. It's, it's too scary out there, Father, to take these steps of faith. And so I, I need the reminder, Father, in your words, take courage. I am here. I am the deliverer. At the last hour of the night, Father, let us come to you out upon the waters. Let us not be afraid, Father, for you are here, for you are with us. May you protect us, Father, from the enemy and what he hopes to do in our lives, Father. May you be our rear guard and our vanguard, Father, going before us and protecting us from the back. 
as we come out to you on the hostile waters. Let our sight not drift, Father, to the chaos and the, and the lies that Satan is trying to fill our heads with, Father. Let, us, let our eyes not go to those places, but let our eyes be fixed upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And let us walk away from this place victorious. Amen.